I need to ask for your response to a certain question. How do you respond, or how would you respond, to someone who says salvation is by faith and Jesus plus our obedience? How would you respond to someone who says, or who teaches, or who writes, that salvation is by faith in Jesus plus our obedience? Well, if you're the type of person who says, well, you know, I might disagree a little bit, but I'll pretty much give the person a pass because at least they're saying faith in Jesus. Well, if that's your response, I hope you like surprises because Acts 15 is going to be a surprise for you. If you respond more along the lines of, well, it's okay to say faith in Jesus. In fact, it's really important. But if you say plus our obedience, that's denying the basics of the finished work of Christ. And and I've got a serious problem with that. Well, if you're that kind of person, I, I hope you like affirmation because Acts 15 is going to affirm you. So today we are going to be in the 15th chapter of the book we call Acts, where this serious matter is the matter, okay? Is salvation by faith in Jesus, period, because his work is complete, or is it by faith in Jesus plus some sort of obedience? That's what's going on in Acts 15, If you're just joining us, welcome. The book of Acts is called Acts, even though that word isn't used in the book, because it's all about the actions. It's all about the acts of the early church. Uh, It's all about what happens after Jesus ascends. Uh, Before Jesus ascends, he says this in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, my martyrs, literally, my gospel martyrs, my gospel witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what's happening is the gospel is going out. It's going out significantly and it's spreading. It's gone from Jews and then it's gone to non-Jews called Gentiles. And it's really making a big impact, influence. Um, At this point in time, when we're in Acts 15, the gospel is being threatened. It's being threatened within the church. And so it's going to be formally addressed because it's a big deal when the church doesn't even know what the gospel is, and there's been drift away from the gospel, so it's a formal kind of counsel. It's a big deal. We've got to get the gospel right. How can we keep preaching the gospel if we don't know what it is or if it's being corrupted? The current location uh, is Antioch, and there are two Antiochs in the New Testament. This is Antioch of Syria, ancient Syria, today's Turkey. I know that's a little confusing, but not that confusing. Antioch of ancient Syria, today's Turkey. It's actually important because in the Roman Empire at the time, it's the third most significant, third largest locale. And it's known even amongst the pagan Romans in the Roman Empire as the Vegas of the ancient Roman domination. Okay, What happens in Antioch stays in Antioch. It's known as a bad place. Even the Romans are trying to figure out how can they curb the excesses because of the, the, the radical God and goddess worship and temple prostitution. And, and it's a bad, it's a bad actor kind of place. And Christianity is booming there. The gospel has taken hold in this significant city and it's taken hold for good. Uh, this place known for revved up paganism, Antioch. Have you found Acts 15 yet? Hope you have. Here we go. 41 verses. I'm not sure we're going to get done today. I'm going to try my best. Um, but I'm not sure we'll make it there. 
is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone? Or is it by grace through faith in Christ plus some sort of obedience? The church is not clear on this at this time. Acts 1, excuse me, Acts 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea, the land of the Jews, and were teaching the brothers. Here it is. This is really important. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's worth repeating. Unless they're saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Saved as in saved from coming judgment, as in saved from the justice of God. You cannot become a real Christian. In other words, uh, you, you can't be saved unless you believe in Jesus and do something. That's, that's what they're teaching. That's what they're saying. These are professing Christians. So they're saying it's not enough to trust in Christ only. You also have to obey to be a citizen of heaven. You also have to do something. In particular, you have to follow the Mosaic law. This is a, let's think about this. This is a unique historic problem. Acts 15, lots of Bible commentators and preachers say it's the most important chapter in the whole book. I don't know if I would say that, but it's a really important chapter. So it's, it's a unique problem, but we all know that it's actually in another sense, not a unique problem. It's an age old problem. This is something people struggled with before this time. It's something they struggle with after this time. It's something that people struggle with now. Have you been on Twitter lately or Facebook or read popular books or listen to preachers? We're not altogether clear. Is it salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone? Or is it faith in Christ plus something we do? We've got to do our part. Which one is it? It's a huge, huge, huge issue. We should see it as a huge issue. It calls for this, what we call the Jerusalem Council, because it's that big of an issue. Is salvation entirely of the Lord? Or is it a partnership where he does his part and we have to do somehow our part? Is it faith and obedience qualifies me for heaven? Or is it faith in Christ qualifies me for heaven? I'm saying the same thing a bunch of different ways. Verse 2, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, strong words, if you want to do you know, Greek word uh, studies and things like that, these are fighting kinds of words. These are arguing kinds of words. These are raise your voice kinds of words. This is a huge, big issue for them. No free passes. This is a big deal for them. Is salvation of the Lord or is it of us and the Lord? No small dissension and debate with them. Let's be clear, Paul and Barnabas are saying. Let's be clear, we're not on the same team. You guys talk about Jesus and we talk about Jesus, but we're talking about a different Jesus. One of the Jesuses, sorry for that, really meant it when he said, it is finished. And your Jesus is not the real Jesus. He's a different Christ. He's an instead of Christ. We could say, for effect, he's an antichrist. Because he did his part, and now you have to do your part. So let's be clear. We're not on the same team. I have some friends who are 
professing Christians who deny basics, basic fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so whenever I'm in a public setting with them and they try to talk to me about the Bible as if we're on the same team in front of other unbelievers, I want to change the subject. Or I want to say something clear enough for all of my unbelieving friends to know that my friend who's in a cult, I'll call it, they name the name of Jesus, but I want everybody to know that we're not on the same team. So they're, they're making that clear here. They, think about this. They had the same Judeo-Christian values. They were, because of that, socially conservative. They had a lot in common. They both named Jesus. But one saves to the uttermost. And the other one, 90%, 99.9%. Faith and works, no small amount of voice raising. This is why Paul says what he does in Galatians. And Galatians is the, is the partner to, to Acts 15. So if you go home today and read the book of Galatians, you'll say, oh, it's talking about, the, these are the same things. Galatians 2.5 says, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might pre- be preserved for you. We, 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 we said, no, not, not for one second are we going to tolerate this. Otherwise, we wouldn't have the gospel preserved. Galatians 2.15 says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. But we know, listen to this, we know a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And if you're thinking, I thought Christian unity was important. It's it's super important. It's vitally important. But we don't have Christian unity if we don't have Christ, the ultimate true Christ. If we don't have the gospel, we actually don't have unity. And so there are two different kinds of animals, if you will. If we don't have authentic Christianity, we don't have authentic unity. It's impossible. One more text from Galatians, and I'll lower my tone a little bit. A long time ago, there was a survey of what people were looking for in a pastor. I remember it was in a David Wells book. And they said the number one thing that people are looking for in a pastor is an open and affirming style. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Is salvation entirely of the Lord or is it not? It's a big deal. It's worth raising your voice over. And it's, 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 it's worth having a church council over. It's worth fighting over. In Galatians 1.8, the Apostle Paul says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to, to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. I think it's pretty fascinating. Different gospels. Now, it's one thing to be misled because you're new. It's one thing to be confused. It's another thing to be teaching this and preaching this and demanding this. Okay, ready to move on to verse 2? I hope you are. I'm ready to be open and affirming. <sighs> so bizarre. I'm just like the dumb you know, person who reads the Bible and becomes a Christian and thinks, you know what, it's pretty straightforward. Um, we're not trying to be elected to office and be open and affirming. Just preach the text. And if you trust in Jesus, God will be open and affirming toward you, right? 
Okay, I'll stop. Verse 2 goes on to say, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. And we're going to see there are those in Jerusalem who are saying it's faith and what you do qualifies you for heaven. It's a big enough deal. Let's go to back to ground zero, right? Let's go back to Jerusalem where the Lord ascended. Let's go back there and let's appeal to the highest court that there is. We're going to gather with the apostles. We're going to gather with the elders and we're going to gather there and we're going to settle this matter because if we don't settle it now, it's going to be problematic there won't, there won't be a gospel to preach anymore. We've got to have this settled. It's known as the Jerusalem Council. Let's move on now. Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church. Notice this is formal. Let's be formal about this. Let's cross our T's and dot our I's. They pass through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and brought great joy to all the brothers. I think that even on our way to Jerusalem, that's fascinating. So what are they telling everybody about? Gentiles, not only Jews, but Gentiles have been converted and they've come to believe in Jesus. And notice no Mosaic law emphasis, but notice this also says, and brought great joy to all the brothers. How do people respond? How should people respond? They're responding the right way. We hear of someone coming to believe in Jesus and they're converted. And so how do we respond? With rejoicing. This is so good. This is great. They don't, they don't respond, notice, with suspicion. Oh, yes, they believed in Jesus, but have they obeyed the law of Moses? No, they've come to believe in Jesus, and so they rejoice. They get it. Have they come to have enough affections for God? In our day, that's a litmus if you're really a Christian. Let's move on to verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. Again, stressing formality, um, not casual. They welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Gentiles are converted. Jews are converted. They're converted in the same way. That's what they're communicating. Verse 5 says, but some of the believers... So Luke is referring to them as believers, so they, they must be confused. Some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And in our greater context, not only necessary, we've already seen it, it's necessary for salvation. Verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. So remember, the apostles are the early church's unique representatives designated by Jesus. I mean, you you had to see the risen Christ. You had to be a witness to the resurrected Christ to be an apostle. So it's a unique kind of office, unique kind of authority. Uh, So they're there. 
And then you also have the elders also there, sometimes in the Bible called overseers, or King James has, has it bishops. They're also the same people are called pastors. And if we read First Timothy and Titus, we see that they're actually going to remain. Apostles will go off the scene, but the elders will remain. But my, my point is just stressing the, the church is gathered. You've got the apostles. They're like the, the ultimate human authorities, if you will. They're the official representatives, representatives of Christ. But then you have those who will carry the baton after they're gone. You have the elders as well. So this, this is meant to be a big deal. There's no higher court. And they're in Jerusalem, as I said. I'll call that ground zero. And now we're going to hear some speeches, some messages. And Peter's going to talk. Paul and Barnabas won't say much. They'll affirm Peter. And then James is going to talk. Because we've got to get this matter settled. The matter that still matters in Omaha, Nebraska, in the 21st century, around the world, is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ alone, or is it by faith in Jesus plus something that you must do? It doesn't get any more practical than this. How are we right with God? Peter's first. Verse 7. And after there had been much debate, it's that big of a deal, it's that critical. Let's leave no stone unturned. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and do lots of good works until finally God accepts them. It so doesn't say that, right? They hear the word of the gospel and believe and no, there is a period there for good reason. You, you, he says, you guys know this. And if we went back to Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11, we would see this happening through the ministry of Peter, through the life of Peter, with Peter acting kind of Peter-esque. A little hard-headed for good and for bad. But he came around to understand this. And he says, and you guys all know how it went down. Believe in Jesus. Okay. Straightforward. Then, verse 8, And God who knows the heart. God, God, The Bible teaches that you don't even know your own heart. God who knows everything. God knows... God, God, the God who knows all things with the hearts of the Jews, the hearts of the Gentiles, the God who knows absolutely everything in history. The, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them. He testified. As a witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit. Notice in two important words, just as, just as he did to us, us Jews. And he made no distinction, just as no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith and obedience to the Mosaic. It doesn't say it by faith. And if you're, you're new to the party, faith means, it's the same Greek word translated faith and believe. It can be translated trust. The idea is resting in, okay? That you, tr- you trust in Jesus, that He did it all, that He paid it all, that, that His righteousness is, is adequate and sufficient. Believing, trusting, resting. 
is the idea. It's not faithfulness. Faithfulness is good. Faithfulness is important. But the word that he's using is not the word for faithful. We want to be faithful. But the idea is resting, trusting, believing that he can carry you. He is a sufficient substitute is the idea. And Peter says, you all know historically what happened to the Gentiles. They received the spirit even with supernatural accompanying signs from God the same way the Jews did. It's the same. Verse 10. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? That's a kind of an interesting way of wording things, isn't it? Remember when it's actually from the Old Testament. I think it's from Deuteronomy. Remember when Jesus is being tempted by the devil and back and forth and Bible verses out of context and don't put God to the test. The Bible teaches don't put God to the test. That's, that's Jesus' response to Satan. The idea is don't behave so badly, so heinously that you're just asking for it. What you're asking for is so hellacious and outlandish and diabolical and any other kind of synonyms you want to find in a thesaurus. It's so awful. You're just, you're just like trying to test God. Like I dare you to, to, to annihilate me. It's so unthinkable, it's so blasphemous, it's so terrible to think that somehow Jesus didn't do everything necessary. You're putting God to the test. Like people who do that don't stand next to them. Because lightning might strike them dead, it's that kind of thing. It's, this is unthinkable to think that it's Jesus' end. Why are you putting God to the test? Why are you just asking for it? Let's keep reading. By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. That, that's worth you meditating on for a moment. Common word picture used by Jesus himself and used elsewhere. So like you would put this yoke around the oxen's neck so it can do work for you. It's, it's an enslavement kind of word picture. And Peter's saying, why are you putting this yoke of slavery and bondage around their neck saying faith and works will get you accepted by God when none of our people have been able to do that? Any time and every time anyone has ever thought that somehow God accepts you based upon your obedience to his commandments, any time and every time anyone who's related to Adam, including Adam, it's been failure every single time, always and forever. Anytime someone says, I'm going to do enough where God can accept me, 
No, we have not been able to bear it. No one can bear it. God's requirement is too high. He requires absolute perfection. And our hearts are too corrupt. We are too sinful and fallen. He can never do it. Never, ever, 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 ever. In Acts 13, 39, it said this. By him, everyone who believes is freed. Oh, freed from the yoke of slavery, spiritual slavery. Believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. See, we're all, in in theology, we call it in, in the Bible, we're all in Adam. We're all fallen. And so we're all in trouble and God's requirements stay the same. But we can, we, can, we can never meet the requirement. And so anytime someone says, even if they say it's faith and, somehow you got to do the and. The problem is you're not a very good and doer. <laughs> and the problem is the requirement is higher than you even thought. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 10. This is really important. It's no wonder people think it's the most important chapter in the book of Acts. Isn't it interesting that even in the old covenant world that's passed by, because now we're in the new covenant world, but even in the old covenant world, it's never been by your obedience to the law. It's never been that. The law is always there and it always requires that you love God and love neighbor perfectly, but, but that's never been the way of salvation since the fall. How do we know that? Well, let's just pick some of the big hitters like the Apostle Paul does in Romans 4. Let's pick Abraham. How was Abraham saved? How was he made right in the eyes of God? Well, glad you asked. Genesis 15, 6. He believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's that. Paul uses Abraham in Romans chapter 4 as an example. And then he knows somebody else is going to say, yeah, but what about David? And then he uses David. It's the same. So in the old covenant, it's never been by your obedience. The requirement has always been there to obey, but it's always been you've got to look for righteousness outside of yourself. And they're falling back into the wrong way of thinking. Just like people think today. We think, oh, it's faith and my works and God will accept me. It's never been that way. And you're just enslaving people to get them on that dastardly treadmill, how much is enough? Actually, it'll never be enough. You've got to have someone else's perfect righteousness credited to you. His name is Jesus. Well, we better keep moving. Verse 11 says, but we believed that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. There's only one way. And it has zero to do with your obedience. It has everything to do with the obedience of the substitute. In theology, we call this sola fide. Thankfully, you don't need to know that to go to heaven or be saved. Sola, alone, like singing a solo. Sola fide, faith. Faith alone. Not faith in faith alone, but faith in Christ alone is how you're saved. It was for good reason that 1,500 years later, as the church has lost sight of this, we had something called the Protestant Reformation, which is all about sola fide, because really it's the same issue. It's the same issue. 
And then the Council of Trent, Session 6, Canon 11, officially damned salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. At least they put it in writing. At least we know. Remember this. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, says that God justifies the ungodly by faith. Who does God declare perfect? The people who have faith in enough work? No. God declares the ungodly perfect. Romans 4, 5. Based upon what? The perfect work of Jesus. The perfect work of Jesus. Don't put God to the test and say, yeah, but you know, we got to do your part. It's, it's crazy sauce. It's just crazy. Jerusalem Council settled the matter. And yet we forget before we even put the keys in the ignition of our cars to go home from church. This will always be an issue till the Lord returns. Is salvation of the Lord or not? We should be clear that it is. Not because we're Protestants, but because we're Christians. And we can read Romans 4, 5, and we can read Acts 15. I plead with you to take these matters seriously. It's unarguable. Now, let's keep moving. Paul and Barnabas, this one will be really short. Amen, you're thinking. Okay, verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So, in a sense, all, all Barnabas, all Paul and Barnabas, you know, had to do is just point to Peter, right? And go, uh-huh, what he said. And, and, and we'll just add this. When we've taken the gospel to Gentiles and they believe there have been signs and wonders, supernatural accompaniment of God's authenticating hand, just like with the Jews. Same. Okay, this is really interesting to kind of um, psychoanalyze a little bit and, and scratch this from what you have to believe. So far, all the scriptures we've read, you have to believe those. This is just me speculating, but it's really interesting to think that in Galatians... Paul talks about having to confront Peter for compromising over these issues. Kind of fascinating. If that book is written first, and we can have debates about that, but if Galatians is written first, let's just speculate for a moment. Galatians is written first, and that's water under the bridge, and Peter has come around. What's Paul thinking as Peter is doing this? I doubt he's saying, I'm such a good mentor. <laughs> but he's praising God. He's praising God. Peter came around. You know what? I don't need to say anything. I did have to say something a while back, but I don't have to say anything now because what he says is exactly right. He gets it. He gets it. Okay, we better move on and hear James. Oh, now James is going to talk in verse 13. I would imagine that the faith plus works men and women and their children are licking their chops. All right, we've heard from Paul, we've heard from Peter. Peter used to be with us, and then Paul did a Jedi mind meld on him or something. Jedi mind trick. I mixed my Star Wars and Star Trek, sorry. <sighs> Blasphemous, I know. <sighs> but but now our guy's up to bat, James. Our, our guy who writes James chapter 2, faith without works is dead. Ha <laughs> ha, how about that? 
So, man, this is good. The, 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 the faith and works people are like, yep, James is going to side with us. Oh, really? Verse 13, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. He's not disagreeing. He's agreeing. And, and I don't know if you've noticed or not, but what he's saying is really, really profound. To take from them a people for his name. I mean, uh, James is just leaning into it. You know what? The people who have the name of Yahweh are Old Testament Israel. That, that, that's, that's reserved for them. And now James is using the same kind of verbiage to talk about Gentiles. He's for sure affirming Gentiles in a big, big, big way. Deuteronomy 7, 6, that's, that, that's holy to the Lord, the people of Israel. And now he's including, take from them, the Gentiles, a people for his name. Whoo. That's, that's a pretty, that, that's pretty accepting. Really accepting. They're the same on equal footing and equal ground as us. And it gets even spicier. Don't miss verse 15. And with this, with this, this meaning Gentile inclusion counted as people for his name. Just like in the Old Testament. And with this, and with this Gentile inclusion, don't, don't miss this. The words of the prophets agree just as it is written. And he's going to quote Amos 9, 11 and 12. Hang on to your hats. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all, get this, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Now, you might not be as excited about that as I am, or you might not be as shocked as I am, and that's fine. I read it who knows how many times, and it wasn't that shocked. But but I'm in a place now where I go, can he say that? That that might get, get him kicked out of certain seminaries. <laughs> what? He's, he's connecting the dots with Jesus as the ultimate one who fulfills the Davidic covenant. This, this Davidic tent, if you will, it's symbolic of his, his kingdom, his dynasty. With the work of Jesus as that one, as the anointed one, as the Christ, there's fulfillment of this. Whoa. Not with David, but the one who's in his line. Wow. The Gentiles are a part of the same body, the same group. This is a present reality. This is shocking. And you know, the Apostle Paul says something similar. Just ever so quickly, I'll, I'll reference Romans chapter 9. In Romans 9, listen, listen to what Paul says. And he's, he's, he's singing the same song, different stanza. Paul says in Romans 9, verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Listen to this. As indeed he says in Hosea. So he's not quoting Amos. He's quoting Hosea to say the same thing. Listen, those who were not my people, I will call my people. 
And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Something extraordinary has happened with the birth of the church, Jew and Gentile, same footing, and the people who were not my people are now called my people. Wow. That's extraordinary. But I thought we had to read the New Testament to get that. Paul gets it in Amos. And James gets it in the Old Testament as well, that this is how it was going to be. This is how it was going to be all along. Okay, we better keep moving. Verse 19, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Kind of an understatement. Let's not trouble them. Because they're equal with us. The only way to get in is by faith. The only way to stay in is by faith. They did it the way we did it. Okay, verse 20 says, but, sh- oh, here, here's what's going to happen. But he's going he's to say, I do want to give you certain instructions. But, should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. I'm going to put my finger there just for a second and say, he's not undoing everything he just did. He's not contradicting himself. He's not contradicting Paul. He's not contradicting Paul and Barnabas. But do remember this, and I'm in really good company when I say this when it comes to commentators. They're in Antioch. Antioch has a high Jewish population of Jewish exiles. Okay, it's pagan McPaganville. Right? All kinds of, again, temple prostitution, idol worship, all of the crazy craziness. And so I think, and again, I'm not the only one who thinks this. He's going to say, in effect, show some love and some sanctified sense the way you act around these Jewish people who are Christians as well, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. Paul will say elsewhere, idols are nothing. You know what? Have a sense of kindness and generosity toward your your. Paul will call them weaker brothers, polluted by idols. And from sexual immorality, that will always be wrong, um, even when we move past this. But in particular context, especially in the context of Antioch and all that was going on there in association with God and goddess worship and sex acts, and from what has been strangled and from blood... And here's why. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So I wouldn't die on this hill, but my take on it is, he's saying, show some love and kindness. Don't flaunt your liberties. It's true. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's true you're not under the Mosaic law, even as we move into the new covenant. But these folks have heard Moses week in and week out ever since they were nursing. Show some kindness, show some generosity. I think that probably is the idea. And I think we'd better pause. Let's end this way. I mentioned James chapter 2, and so I'll bring that up again. James does say that faith without works is dead. Okay? 
But if you read what James says when he says it, and he say, he goes so far as to say we're justified by works. How can he say that in James 2 and yet say what he says here? And there's a simple answer. Please get this. In James chapter 2, he's talking about this kind of dynamic. Okay? The horizontal dynamic, not the vertical dynamic. In Acts 15, he's talking about the vertical dynamic. How are we saved? How are we right with God? How are we justified by God? He's as clear as the nose on my face, and that's pretty clear. It's by faith in Jesus, period. In James chapter 2, he's talking about justified in the eyes of other people. He says, I'll show you, you show me. He's not talking about this. He's talking about how we can see each other. And by my works, I'm justified in your eyes that I'm the real deal because faith without works is dead. So I'm just giving you classic understandings of these things. But sometimes we forget and we panic or we don't know what's going on. And why does he contradict himself? He doesn't contradict himself. And so maybe we can be more clear on this. Did I say I was going to leave you with that? Why is this such a big deal? It's such a big deal because people are confused about it and there will always be confusion about it. It's a big deal as well because if salvation is by you and Jesus, then you get some of the glory and God gets some of the glory. Let's not put God to the test with that one. The good litmus I like to use, and I've used it a million times, I'll keep using it. When you read about heaven in the Bible, you see people get to heaven and they say, worthy is what? The lamb who was slain. What you don't see is, my God, we did it. Please think as you evaluate religious systems, as you read their literature, as you hear them talking, if there's any sense of it would leave room for mutual congratulations in heaven, you can know that it's wrong because now salvation isn't of the Lord, it's of us. It really is a big deal. And you say, this isn't very practical. It doesn't get more practical than how to get to heaven and be accepted by God. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you even for these kinds of hard-hitting passages. We're thankful for, oh, in one sense, we're not thankful for controversies. And yet, we know that you use controversies. And we certainly know that you have used and will use and hopefully are using this particular controversy in the life of the early church to help us in the 21st century. We do want Christian unity. Please continue to remind us that we can't have Christian unity where we don't have Christianity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.